You are listening to EE Times On Air, and this is EE Times Current. I'm Eric Singer. Welcome to Brains and Machines, a deep dive into neuromorphic engineering and biologically inspired technology. In this episode, EE Times regular Sonny Baines talks to Professor Steve Ferber, now Emeritus Professor at the University of Manchester and legendary designer of the BBC Micro and ARM microprocessors. You'll find out about how he got involved with neuromorphic engineering and the Spinnaker project that he's been working on for the last couple of decades, as well as some of the improvements his team has made to the prototype Spinnaker 2 chip. But first, today's EE Times current highlights. Robot operating system advances left up to industry. OEMs and industry players are increasingly becoming responsible for advances in robotic operating systems. New Chips demos recommendation accelerator for LLM inference. Taiwanese AI accelerator maker New Chips has demoed LLAMA 2 7B inference at 240 tokens per second on a 4-chip PCIe card. Wired for success, women in electronics. Now is the time for the electronics industry, which suffers from a debilitating talent shortage, to direct its recruiting efforts toward women. Now, back to Brains and Machines. Your hosts are Dr. Sonny Baines of University College London and Dr. Giulia D'Angelo of the Italian Institute of Technology. Welcome to Brains and Machines. I am Giulia D'Angelo. And I'm Sonny Baines. In today's episode, Sunny talks to Steve Forber from the University of Manchester about his work on Spinnaker. After the interview, we will be talking to Raoul Fitian Cummings from Johns Hopkins University about the issues they raise. Thanks, Julia. Professor Steve Ferber has been a hero of British computing since the 80s when he co-designed the ARM architecture and BBC Micro with Sophie Wilson. However, today we're not interested in his conventional computing achievements, but his efforts since the turn of the century to build brain-like processors. There are links to his work and some of the specific papers we'll be discussing on our website. You can check them out at brainsandmachines.net. Steve was just in the process of retiring from the University of Manchester when I went down to meet him in his office there. Steve Ferber, welcome to Brains and Machines. Normally, I ask people about their technical background, but in your case, that seems redundant since there have been histories written about your contributions to computing. So instead, can you tell us what inspired you to get involved with neuromorphic engineering? Yes, I've been involved in mainstream computing since the late 1970s. And as you say, that background is well documented. But when I came to Manchester, I started off working on asynchronous implementations of ARM processors with a fundamental interest in the role asynchronous design might play in reducing power consumption and radio interference and such matters. But after 20 years in mainstream computing, I began to sort of wonder why it was that Although computers were a thousand times more powerful than when I started, they still struggle to to solve problems that that we humans find easy, even when we're very young, such as recognizing our mother's face. That led me into a, a line of research, which was a project on inexact associative memories, all right? So I'd liked associative memories using them in caches and so on in mainstream computing, but I wanted to see standard associative memories are very brittle. So you give them the right input, they give exactly the right output. You give them the wrong input, they give you rubbish. K- 
Can you define for us what you mean by associative memories? Because interestingly, when I started out in optical computing, we were all talking about associative memories, but I suspect what I'm thinking about is very different from what you're talking about. So how did those associative memories work? So an associative memory is one that effectively does an internal search. When you feed it with some data, it searches to see if it recognizes that data. And if it does, it tells you where it found it. So it's like a conventional memory in reverse. With a conventional memory, you give it an exact address and it tells you what data it has stored at this address. With an associative memory, you give it some data and it says which address it has it stored at. Okay, and so I'm assuming in digital conventional computation, that's a very laborious process, trying to search for matching sets of data within a whole memory. Sure, search is, is very tedious to do on a, on a conventional computer, which is why having a memory that does it very fast internally has advantages for some applications. As we looked into these associative memories, I was trying to make them softer so that instead of being brittle and precise, they would tell you if something was roughly right. And every way I looked at trying to build softer associative memories, I ended up reinventing neural networks effectively. And so at the end of that particular piece of research, I thought, well, okay, maybe I should be interested in neural networks. And, and that led me as a hardware guy directly towards neuromorphics. Spinnaker is now a well-known platform and has been used in hundreds of projects. Can you talk us through what you think, partly in retrospect, were the most important features of the platform and why you designed it the way you did? So the platform has two key aspects, I think, in, in terms of its design. One of which is you know, it's a massively parallel computer. And the important aspect is how those processes are connected. And, and that was very much driven by what we know about connectivity in the brain. The brain is highly connected. A typical cortical neuron connects to many thousands of other neurons. And that's hard to do with conventional computer communications. The real innovation in Spinnaker was the multicast routing mechanism that we incorporate on every chip. And this does an associative search and sends an incoming packet which carries a spike to any or all of the internal processes and any or all of the neighboring chips. So it's a multicast mechanism which allows us to build arbitrary trees of connectivity across the machine. So a spike originating in one place can be sent simultaneously to thousands of destinations. And the requirement that we set ourselves was to model spiking neurons in biological real time, and that means we have to deliver that spike everywhere it needs to go in a small fraction of a millisecond. So that communications aspect was the key, if you like, brain-inspired or neuromorphic feature of Spinnaker. The other decision we took early on was how are we going to model the neurons and synapses themselves? And we started off looking at hardware engines for efficient modeling of neurons. But when we studied the literature, it was clear that there was no real consensus as to what is the right model of a neuron, and more particularly, what is the right model of a synapse and, and the learning rules that synapses implement. And so if there's no consensus, the ideal solution is the most flexible one. And if there's one thing that supports flexibility, it's software. So it was 
that point when we decided to implement the neuron and synapse rules in software and, and base the machine around very large numbers of small embedded processors combined with the communication concepts, that's basically what became Spinnaker. Now, if I remember correctly, the communication fabric is asynchronous, is yes. that correct? Yes. So was that also an important part of the design chain for you? And did that cause any problems to go for asynchronous rather than synchronous? The asynchronous communications reflected the work we'd done in the 90s on asynchronous system design. So asynchronous digital design was in our blood at the time we started Spinnaker. And it was a very natural way to implement the interconnect because it decouples all the clock domains. It means that you only have timing to resolve within a very small subdomain of a chip. Everything connects asynchronously. And we knew how to do it. Furthermore, we had, a, at the time, established a spin-out company, Solistics, which was commercializing tools for asynchronous network-on-chip technology. We used their tools to build the on-chip communications and as, uh, basically as the basis of the inter-chip communications on the first Spinnaker chip. This is just for my own benefit, really, but my understanding is that Luigi is asynchronous, but eventually they had to put a limit on how asynchronous it was, that essentially it's asynchronous, but with a stop to it. Is that true of Spinnaker too? No, it's not. It has truly asynchronous communications which run in parallel with the processing. We didn't use asynchronous processors, even though we'd spent the 90s designing asynchronous versions of the ARM, but that was really a, a sort of engineering pragmatics that, that we wanted to put in a, an efficient small processor and ARM had a, a library of these things and they were willing to support the research. From your point of view, what have been the most interesting experiments run on Spinnaker and what were the results? Spinnaker has been used for a very wide range of, of applications, from modeling the brain, which was its original design intent, to real-time robotics. And we don't actually have detailed knowledge of everything that's been done. We haven't tracked every project. But in terms of significant projects that we've had a role in, one of the most significant has been working with Ulich Forschungszentrum on the cortical microcircuit model that they developed. And that's become a sort of benchmark for neural simulation. And groups implemented that model on high-performance computers, on GPU systems, and on Spinnaker. And Spinnaker was the first machine to achieve biological real-time. And, and it was quite a stretch. It was really pushing the machine towards some of its limits to get that to run in real time. And we had to re-engineer how we mapped problems onto the machine. And that work was led by Oliver Rhodes and, and, and Luca Perez. And we were very pleased with that. Now, uh, the HPC and GPU systems have all subsequently achieved real time. But even so, getting Spinnaker there first on what was already relatively old technology, competing with GPUs and HPCs using state-of-the-art technology, I think was a significant milestone as far as we're concerned. So let's go back and just, can you explain a little bit about these microcortical circuits just so that we can understand 
how Spinnaker ran on those. So the cortical microcircuit is an abstraction, but a fairly biologically accurate abstraction of the way that the various layers of the cortex interact. Each layer has a combination of excitatory and inhibitory cells and connect connections between layers are fairly well documented. So getting the data from the literature to construct a model, which was largely done by our collaborators in Ulich, was relatively straightforward. But those models are very highly connected, as is the biology. And the goal of the model was firstly to check that it would reproduce the biological firing rates, which can be measured by standard wet neuroscience experiments, and therefore check that the model in some sense was capturing the essence of at least the stable mean behavior of the network. And ultimately, of course, to try and use that network to understand what this circuit is doing, because the cortex is a central area for human intelligence. It's where many of our higher level functions are believed to reside. And we know the circuitry very well, but we don't know what it's doing or how it does it. And it's very different from a conventional artificial network where the flow of information is typically quite simple in the cortex. The information is flowing back and forth between layers in, in, in complex patterns that we, we still don't understand. On the issue of timing, one of the things that I had heard from people from Heidelberg was that their analog systems that the problem with those is almost that they're too fast. And so it's interesting, this idea of being as fast as the brain works. How do you make sure to get the right level of timing as opposed to running too fast or too slow for whatever is going on? How do you make it natural with the incoming signal or does that just come for free with a neuromorphic approach? Spinnaker has a time base, or at least it has many time bases, but each of the processor cores that, that is modeling neurons and synapses effectively operates with a clock that, that ticks every millisecond, although that's programmable. And for example, for the cortical microcircuit, that's a tenth of a millisecond. And we can scale time, so we can run models at 10 times slower than biological real time or 100 times slower, and often for debugging, that's very useful. But the goal of the project was to support biological neural modeling in biological real time, so run at the same speed as the brain. Now, brain scales has a different objective. They are running much faster than that, uh, 10 to the 3 to 10 to the 4 times faster. And some of that is, is for convenience, because it's quite difficult to make analog electronic circuits go as slowly as the brain. The electronics naturally is much faster, and to make it go slow, you have to introduce large capacitors, which cost a lot of chip area. So they have opted to go at the natural speed of the electronics, which is much faster than biology. And there are advantages in being faster. Obviously, if you, for example, want to model five years of childhood learning, a model of the relevant part of the human brain, then in, in biological real time, that experiment takes five years. And in a 10,000 times sped up brain scales model, it takes five hours, okay? So faster is often better in computing. On the other hand, if you want to operate your neural network in a, in a robotics environment, 
that actually interacting with the world in, in real time makes sense. And with the brain scale system, you can't actually slow it down, okay? So you're, you're obliged to go very fast, whether you want to or not. Now on Spinnaker, running at biological real time, we found the communications the major problem in designing the system. And that's where the innovation was in the solution that we came up with. Now, if communications is the central problem for biological real time, you can imagine what sort of problem it is if you're going 10 to the four times faster. Your entire communication system has to run 10,000 times faster. And that really limits your choices when it comes to how you implement it. So I'm assuming that having the platform used in earnest in all these different projects also taught you about the weaknesses of the system that you've built. What have you learned that you wanted to apply to Spinnaker 2 that you wanted to tweak? Oh yes, we've learned a lot of lessons with, with Spinnaker 1 and, and with the many users we've worked with. And several of those lessons have been applied in the design of Spinnaker 2. One, for example, is that exponentials arise very frequently in, in the typical differential equations that describe biological neurons. And so Spinnaker 2 has got accelerators for exponential computation and logarithms. Another less obvious one is that uh, high-quality random numbers are very important. And on Spinnaker 1, it's relatively cheap to compute moderate quality random numbers in software, but high quality random numbers are quite expensive in software, uh, but they're very cheap in hardware. Um, so we have uh, various random number sources built into the hardware on each processor on Spinnaker 2. Of course, the, the other thing that's happened in the 20 years we've been working on Spinnaker has been the spectacular rise of conventional AI and its reliance on matrix operations. So Spinnaker 2 also has an accelerator for matrix vector multiplication, uh, which allows it to support artificial neural nets as well as spiking nets and hybrid systems that combine the strengths of both of those approaches. So Spinnaker 2 is really aimed at, at supporting hybrid networks, not just spiking networks. So where does the Spinnaker 2 project stand now? Uh, the Spinnaker 2 has been in, in design throughout the Human Brain Project as a collaborative activity between my group here in Manchester and Christian Mayer's group at TU Dresden. And we've had a number of prototype chips which have been developed and tested and in fact supported various bits of research which has been published. So some very interesting papers comparing, for example, keyword recognition on low EE with Spinnaker 2. Around a year ago, I think we received the first full Spinnaker 2 silicon. That's still very much at, at prototype stage. So it's we've got chips on boards in our lab here in Manchester and of course in Dresden. And we're using those uh, to check out the hardware and to bring up the software. Um, although Spinnaker 2 is fundamentally very much based on the concepts of Spinnaker 1, a lot of the details of the low-level software have to be rewritten because the hardware looks different at the very basic level. And do you have some idea of when that's likely to be released as something that other people can use? Uh, I think the plans, and, and this is very much being led by Dresden, who are who set up a company, SpinCloud Systems GmbH, to commercialize Spinnaker 2. And I think they're very much expecting to get that running commercially in the middle of next year. 
I've always thought of Spinnaker 2 as being more of a simulator than neuromorphic hardware in its own right. In the sense, I guess, that to me, neuromorphic computing is computing with physics, whereas yours is very much a, a conventional computer computer platform, but the communications is more neuromorphic. I've been told that this is less true of Spinnaker 2. I'm not sure, based on your description, whether that's true or not. But can you give me some idea of the way you see Spinnaker 1 and Spinnaker 2 from that sort of neuromorphic definition? There is no doubt that the original concept of neuromorphic computing, as developed by Carver Mead, with his group at Caltech in the 1980s, was very much about emulating biological neural processes in analog electronic circuits, and indeed sub-threshold analog circuits if you wanted to operate at biological speeds. But neuromorphic computing has diversified enormously since then, and the definition of what constitutes a neuromorphic system has broadened a lot. Now, if you look at Spinnaker, then really the major aspect of the machine's design that is brain-inspired is the communication system, very much driven by the very high degree of connectivity found in the biological brain. And around that communication system are conventional processes running software. So in some sense, it looks very like a conventional high-performance computer, with the difference that the processors are small energy-efficient embedded processors rather than high-end number-crunching processors as used in HPC. And whether you class it as a neuromorphic system or not, is it's a matter of definition. And But there's a continuous scale. If you look at Lowehe and True North, they're, okay, they're not using programmable processors, but they're still using algorithms cast into hardware to implement the neurons and the learning rules. If you go to brain scales, then yes, now we've moved from simulation to emulation. The circuits are emulating the brain, but of course they're operating way above biological speeds. And there are still people working with sub-threshold analog circuits, which are, if you like, truest to Carver Mead's original concept. But I'm not sure I worry too much about the definitions. And I think most of us agree with you that neuromorphic is really much more of a broad church these days than it is one specific approach, whether it's spiking, whether it's sub-threshold, whether it's analog or digital. I think most people take that view that it should be a broader definition. So let me end by asking you about your future plans. So I understand you're retiring from the university now. Do you intend to go cold turkey or will you just be working less intensely, less often? What are your plans? Well, it will probably be stretching a point to say I've got plans at this stage. It, it's a bit unknown, but you know, I'm in my 70th year, so I feel it's time to step aside from my university role. I've been part-time since 2018, working 60%. But I have a lot of connections with companies, and post-retirement, I will not drop everything. So I'm not, uh, I think that's what you mean by cold turkey. I'm not going to go that way. I will retain connections, both with companies in conventional computing and those in neuromorphics. And I certainly hope to continue to have links with the Spinnaker projects and with SpinCloud as it 
uh, progresses to commercialization in the future and some other neuromorphic companies that I have interest with. Steve Ferber, thanks so much for coming on to Brains and Machines. It's nice talking to you, Sunny. Sunny, thanks for another interesting interview for us to talk about. And we welcome Professor Raoul Fertien Cummings from Johns Hopkins University back to discuss it with us. Hi, Sunny. Hi, Julia. Hey, Ralph. Really nice to have you back. Julia, what did you think? So listening to Ferber, it has been great. Like the history basically of Neuromorphic, he just retired, but he will keep working and it's incredible. So just going straight to the questions. When Ferber says that when they started, they did not know what was the right implementation of a neuron. It's exactly the same question we have now and that we had over and and over in Capocaccia, right? And we struggle to define what is neuromorphic and what is not. Or anyway, the problem is only in the definition, if there is any. What's your view on this? Yeah, so I think Steve basically talks about the fact that digital versus analog yeah, doesn't make any difference in terms of the implementation. You just have to pick a right approach that is appropriate for you. What is interesting in his statement, I, th- I think, is that basically he says because the model of the neuron was, he was agnostic about, he wanted to use a software definition of it such that one can implement various different models. So he could choose to do the Zikovich models, for example, or he could choose to do the Ashkin uh, Huxley or the Mihalas Nibor or whatever the case may be. And that's just a question of writing a few lines of code, and then you can implement what he wants. And then, of course, that's the same thing with the synapses, as he referred to. You can change the activation profile, you can change the time constants based on some few definitions in software. So that gives the the platform a lot of power in terms of being able to change everything from simple integrated fire to complication as deep as um, as Yeah, and I got like the the project that Furber was talking about got my attention. And uh, I'm lucky because I know Luca Paris very well. We collaborate also. And I got the chance to ask him directly this morning. I called them and I asked them for the secrets of that project that Furber was mentioning. So basically they created a network of 77,000 neurons and 0.3 billion synapses. And the network was fully connected with different delays among the connections. They were representing one millimeter cube of early sensory cortex with no plasticity involved. But then they have five layers with parts of the neurons with the high fan in and parts with low fan in but long connections. So the challenge here was to simulate this huge network managing the traffic of data, therefore receiving the current and computing the state of each neuron. So basically the genius here, or at least in my opinion, has been to split some cores for the synapses and some cores only for the neurons so Mm -hmm. that they wouldn't interfere. And then in parallel, Gemini worked on the gen version of the same network and Ulic on the Nest uh, version of the network for the GPU and the HPC. So even though Spinnaker was using old technology, and I think that this was 
underlined by Forber, right? Even though Spinnaker was using old technologies such as ARM cores, they were the fastest one. They were able to update each neuron in 100 microseconds. And this is a work done in 2020, and Luca worked heavily on splitting the synapses and the neurons in the core. And this was originally a network that needed to be slowed down to be simulated. And I think it's pretty impressive. What's your view on this? Yeah, I think the, the approach of splitting things up into different, different modules, if you will, like all the synapse module and neuron module. This is, this is done by multiple people in the sense of parts of the chip will be just the neuron part and then part of the chip will be just the synapse part and part of the chip will be the network or the chip piece, right? I guess what's cool here is the fact that he's using multiple different cores to do that, right? So it's a set of cores that is doing the synapses and cell cores that's doing the, the, the neurons and so on. And then you still need to do the network and the chip. For me, the most important aspect, and I think Steve also expresses that in his interview, is the fact that the networking is the key at the end of the day, right? Is getting the packets around. Mm. You've got 77,000 neurons firing and you've got to try to get the, this projection field, right? One neuron fires and it projects to a large number of other neurons. How do you get that data to the other 77,000 that is going to in a way that is, that is efficient, that is fast, that is at real time? That really is, is where I think that the genius, if you will, lives, right? And that's where he said that he, he borrowed a lot from the biological networks that he's known about in order to make that happen. The neurons themselves, right? I don't know that he articulated specifically which model of neurons in, in this simulation. I don't think I heard that. I think the point of the system is that it's programmable to use whatever neuron model you want to use. True. That was one of the things that Steve says in the interview. So the idea was that people who are texting hypotheses on whatever kind of neuron could use the Spinnaker system. Yes, I, I agree with that. But I asked, but they, they did a specific implementation of the of the hyperpolymer, the, the the cortical microcircuit, right? So I wanted to know which neuron model did they use in that particular implementation. That's why. Because that he, I don't think he ever spoke to that. And it yeah, it might just not be that important. In other words, I don't think it was as just a simple integrated part. I doubt very much that was the case, right? And I imagine that if he's trying to get something that is more realistic to the pyramidal cells in, in cortical neurons, then you'll have to have some kind of dendritic tree. You'll have to have a distributed places of where the synapses are coming in. Is he modeling all of that? Or is it just a point neuron? That's the part that I did not quite get. And of course, if it's a point neuron, it's easier from a computational perspective than if it's something with distribution, with dendrites and, and everything else. And that's where the complication really comes in. But then the key of neuromorphic is confirmed to be the structure, the, archi the architectures that we can create. I guess it depends what you mean by the key. And I think if he's trying to, you know, truly mimic the, the, uh, the networks that exist in these microcircuits, then it should get as much of the, of the realism into it, right? Of course, at the same time, how much do we know? So there's a balance between what we know and what we can implement and then how complicated the circuit is and then how fast it can operate, right? So if, if I was told that he was in, he implemented really a complete example of a neuron, right, with all the boutons and 
all the various distribution. And then he was able to do that for entire one millimeter by one millimeter area of the cortex. That is really, that is truly impressive because you get all the full flow, right? I would have liked a little bit more details on that. Again, this is another big fight that we always had in Capocazza. Biologists saying, no, you should add more detail. And engineers, no, you should remove more detail. <laughs> it's always the same. But, but because we're engineers, there's always a trade-off. There is an argument that the reason that you go for more complexity is not just because it's biologically valid, but also because you're actually getting more sophistication of behavior, more power essentially out of that circuit. And it's where the circuit costs <laughs> overwhelm the circuit functionality. That's where that trade-off comes. And that changes all the time. That's the thing that so makes it so elusive, right? This field is right. at what point do you say, let's keep it simple. So the Jack and Mo Indivery podcast came out today and I was listening to the final version of it the night before last. And it really struck me this idea that Giacomo is trying to do more complex neurons and there's the hope that will do better. But on the other hand, his company is making the simplest possible neurons, uh, which has also a beauty to it, right? And a benefit to it. And it's where do you find the sweet spot between those two? Is it going to be a coming together or is it going to be a splitting apart? I think in a way it's still early right. in that game. So I agree with you entirely, Sunny, but I would say the following, right? I, I'd say it seemed to me the way that Steve was describing this, this large network that implemented, the intent was to replicate the biology. That was the, that's the intent that I understood uh, why they did it. So in that sense, then you want to put as much realism of the biology into it. Otherwise, you're not replicating the biology, right? So that's one thing. And then on the other hand, on the other extreme, like the, the, the example that you just talked about, the intent is to solve a problem, maybe to do handwriting recognition or whatever it is. So there you use as simple a model as you can to get it done as quickly and as low power and, as, and so on and so forth as you can. So I think it's the intent, yeah. What you're trying to but, do. but for Spinnaker, so uh, I have to say, I met Steve for the first time very near the beginning of Spinnaker when it wasn't really a thing yet. You know, he hadn't started to really fully design it yet. Uh, so this is maybe 15 or 20 years ago. And I remember being very skeptical of it. But you have to think about this project in context, right? And the context is the human brain project, mm -hmm. which was this ginormous uh, European-funded project. Was it Henry Markram? Henry Markram, yeah. yes. So I visited Zurich, I don't know, in the early 2000s, that must have been. And it just so happened that he was there, and I think I heard him give a talk. And I was very skeptical also about the Human Brain Project, I have to say. But I spoke to a lot of people about it this summer as I was recording a lot of these interviews, but also talking to people off the record. And actually, a lot of good stuff came out of the Human Brain Project. And the point of Spinnaker, which was growing alongside that and was funded by that, was really, as I understand it, to allow these other people 
to have a nice, efficient simulator that would do whatever it was that they wanted. So yes, it's brain inspired, but it was definitely a simulator. It wasn't supposed to be doing it in a biologically valid way locally on the machine. So to me, it was never really neuromorphic, at least Spinnaker 1. My definition changes all the time now, but in my definition of neuromorphic, it was not neuromorphic. Spinnaker 2, we can have discussions about. Spinnaker 2 is much more sophisticated, but Spinnaker 1 was supposed to be a simulation engine. And in that, I think it was somewhat successful. But like Luihi, some other platforms that always had problems that it wasn't quite as easy to use as the people who wanted to use it would have liked it to be. Yes, I agree in some extent. Of course, just as Steve said, I think the neuromorphic part of Spinnaker 1 was in the communications, was in the spike routing. Was That's where the real neuromorphic element basically lies. Now, I had the advantage of using Spinnaker 1 at the early stage when it just came out. And we put it on a robot and we had it a piece of the hippocampus of a mouse, which is used for navigation. So it's a SLAM, the simultaneous localization and mapping model that we actually implemented. And what we were able to do there, and to to answer your question about the software, because that always comes back, right? How do you use such a big network, right? The cool thing that we were able to use there was the work of Chris Eliasmith from from Waterloo, Nango. And it it was easy... When I say easy, in the space of three weeks, we could do this, right? In, in, in Italian, we're able to make Nango control Spinnaker, make Spinnaker control a robot, then implement the network that we were trying to implement, which was a place cell and border cells and all these kinds of cell models. And then we were able to see it, we embody it, make it move in real life on the floor. And this is the work of uh, Francesco Galupi when he was doing his PhD at at um, Manchester, right? Part, part of what he was working on. You know, together we were able to make this happen. So, I mean, I think that um, in the end, um, even though it may not have been maybe the implementation of the, the simulation part may not have been as, quote-unquote, neuromorphic as we would like it to be, right? There was enough of the real um, inspiration in there and we could implement pretty much anything that we want to make it do neuromorphic things. And, and I, I completely agree with that. And I don't mean to diminish it by saying that to me, it wasn't particularly neuromorphic technology in that sense, but it was a stepping stone and it was a way of testing hypotheses and it was a simulator and that, that was good enough and that was really valuable. It's just that it's not, I think the way I would put it is that to me, good neuromorphic technology is the thing that you would actually want to run your final robot on because it's small mm-hmm. and it's fast and it's giving you the power advantages. And I don't think Spinnaker 1 was actually designed to be that. I don't think they ever intended it to be that. It was supposed to be that stepping stone to understand what you're doing. Julia? 
So from a student point of view, now I'm a postdoc, but when I started the, um, the PhD, I loved working with, with Spinnaker. It helped me to, to under really understand what neuromorphic means and how to really create a spiky neural network. And it was amazing because it was flexible. I could really do my neural network and it was very cool. What actually blocked me at the end, it was that in simulation, it was great. But then at the end, I had this big board that, of course, I kept the robot with which I work mm. cannot go <laughs> with this big board, carry on this big board. And although I think that it's amazing to be that flexible, I'm in love too with the, the spec device because although it's simpler, you can't get that crazy with connections, it's effective, it works, and it's small. So it has all of the amazing requirements that we need in robotics. Yeah, so I think it's a question, again, is the embodiment that you're trying to implement, right? iCloud is a human, right? So clearly, unless you're trying to make a hybrid between a, a shark and a human, you're not going to have a blade sticking out the top of his head, right? <laughs> so on the other yeah. hand, the robot that I was using was one of your Conrad's robot, the floor uh, mobile robot sticking the board in, you know, in the backbone was perfect. And it was able to run the, the algorithms that we were trying to run. And that is, in fact, we had a demo at one of the biocasters where we ran it. So it's, so in the end, uh, yeah, it's a question of that embodiment. I think the embodiment becomes more important than as, as we move forward. So on a side note, I'd like to ask for another question, if I may. And at some point, Sunny asks to Ferber about the fact that it is cool to be as fast as the brain does. But I remember during one exam passing the years of the PhD, I was very happy because I had my saliency map produced every 70 milliseconds and I was so ready to present it and to showcase it. And then the examiner just told me, do you really need to go that fast? Does the robot really go that fast? And this shocked me, I remember, because I didn't know how to answer. And then I think from there on, I kept thinking on the task. And most of the time, we seek so much to be so fast that we for completely forget that it's totally dependent on the task. And sometimes we just need to be more reliable. What do you think? Yeah, and I, I, my sense is that it, it depends on the size of the problem, right? So I don't know how many pixels you are doing with your, your saliency map, right? But if it's small, if it's 200 by 200, you can run it at that speed, right? But if you want to do something where you're doing a megapixel, you really want to know where things are, then all of a sudden you won't be able to get that speed because your individual elements that, that's running won't be able to get you cumulatively that speed, right? So that's why we always want to go as fast as we can because then we can scale the problem up to different sizes or to add multiple layers and still maintain that real time. So yes, we really want to go that fast because it allows us the flexibility to get bigger, to get more complex. However, you can always add delays. You can always slow it down, right? You can always put no ops in between to make it run at a, at a, different, at a different speed if the problem is small enough that is a need. That would be my perspective. Sonny? I, I wish I could look it up because I'd like to quote you back to you. <laughs> I'm sure you said in an earlier discussion that we had, mm -hmm. you pointed out that the whole purpose is about having a kind of parallel pipeline. Mm -hmm. So the whole beauty of neuromorphic and of parallelism should be that the scaling 
doesn't matter so much, right? Because you're going in one direction, not in both directions. You're not having to compare everything with everything else in quite the same way. So I'm wondering about what you. So said. I agree with that to some extent. It depends on the implementation, right? So if it's pure, if it's actually truly parallel, then yeah, I agree with you, right? Then it's, I agree with myself on this. Then it's a question of which one of them, you know, running in parallel. Then it's the timing that it takes for one to run. It's the same thing, but it's not cumulative, right? But if you're running something that is a little bit more serial in nature, which is what Spinnaker is in the end, right? It's a core. It's got to do multi-threads and so on. Then you want each thread to run as fast as it possibly can so that you can put more and more and more and more elements in the thread, right? So that's where it's been. So true. If he, if he said that Spinnaker has 77,000 cores where each core is implementing one, one neuron or one update or one, one stream, then I would say, oh, yeah, agree with you completely, right? Then the speed of that individual core may not necessarily be a nanoseconds, Right. Because then it would match the timing or whatever the signal flow and the actuation you're trying to do. That's what you care about. Okay, so let's end it there. Thanks again to Ralph for a great discussion and to Sunny for a really interesting interview. Next time, Sunny will be interviewing Professor Melika Pavent, head of the Emerging Intelligent Substrates Lab at the Institute of Neuroinformatics in Zurich. We hope you will join us then. That brings another episode of EE Times Current to a close. Thank you for listening, and thanks to our guest, Professor Steve Ferber from the University of Manchester. EE Times Current is available through the major podcast platforms, but if you reach us at our website, eetimes.com, you'll find a transcript of this episode. EE Times Current is produced by EE Times. It was engineered by Alex Hawley and Taylor Marvin at Coop Studios in Boulder, Colorado. The segment producer was Stephanie Munoz. I'm Eric Singer. Thanks for listening.